0: Hi, this is Ann Wilson, and you're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business.
1: From Bill Wordy via Hypebot, the Taylor Master, deep thoughts on a broken live music biz. From Midia, the record label's TikTok opportunity cost. And from Hypebot, where are all the Twitter users going... And what is the Fediverse? Huh? I'm sorry, Jay, are people talking about Twitter? (laughs) I haven't really been paying attention. (laughs) Apparently they are. Well, welcome, everyone. Hopefully when you're listening to this, you have uh, enjoyed your long weekend, uh, if you're at least here in the U.S., so we are super happy to have you here. So Jay and I are going to start the program and get rolling right about now.
2: Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air, on the air, on the air, on the air, on the for the new music business it's the highly curated agitated advocated moderated and liberated digital music information that you need to know we are your digital music authority now from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Echard.
1: Well, Jay, thank you, man. Good to see you, brother. Here we are Happy on a Saturday. Thanksgiving weekend. Yes, indeed. It was lovely to nice. uh, to not go to work. <laughs> it was <laughs> lovely to overeat. Yeah. It was lovely to hang with family and friends. Absolutely. And uh, listen to some music. I watched the Elton. I, watched, I haven't yeah. seen the whole Elton thing, but I watched the Elton concert on, on, uh, on Disney+. Plus. That was really and good. Um, it was good. I
0: thought the everything, start to finish, the song selection, Elton's voice sounded great, the band is phenomenal. Um, I have a buddy who's in that band. Uh shout out to Matt Bissonet. Um what an amazing uh performance. And uh yeah,
1: Dodger Stadium, huge. Dodger Stadium, right? And you know, you forget his his as we were talking before we hit record, you know, he doesn't have the the top end range that he used to have, but when and few do, you know. Um, but boy, he's had a super strong voice. I, mean, I was I yeah. was knocked out by by how well he how good he sounded. Yeah. And start to you know finish. how how rare that is for somebody who's in their mid seventies to go out there and do a full show like that. And you know he is he is hitting it. Yeah. yeah.
0: That was a really Man. great uh, concert and a special shout out and a thank you to ann wilson uh for that cool intro um she has um, a new track actually it's the band disturbed has a new album and there's a track called don't tell me um that ann is featured on in fact let's listen to a few seconds of that
1: Speaking of still having the pipes, still just being able to nail, and, I, and I've told this story, I think, a couple of times on the podcast, but I saw them on their first tour, this would have been in 1976, I was, I'd was just gotten my driver's license, and and they were playing this weird bill up in Santa Barbara at UCSB, they were the opening act, Leonard Skinnerd was the middle act, and then Jefferson Starship was... The other act. Now, of course, this is this is when Leonard Skinner was at the top of their game, just just a year before the plane crash, actually. Yeah. And Jefferson Starship had kind of had that resurgence, that career resurgence. They had a, a couple of big albums and big hits, and here were these upstarts from from the Pacific Northwest, these sisters, and they came out and they absolutely blew both of those bands off the stage yeah and that was my first exposure to the ann wilson voice and i remember just literally being 16 and going okay this is i'd never seen a band like that an opening act totally upstart the or or totally upset the second and third and headliners and like that it was unreal and then you listen to that she still got it. Oh, she still has it. Um, Ann
0: Wilson is one of my all-time favorite vocalists, and uh, yeah, she definitely still has it. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, they were my my Beatles, they were my Led Zeppelin, um, and just phenomenal musicians, phenomenal uh, vocals. So, uh, thank you, uh, Ann Wilson, for that. Um, did you um, did you see that yesterday was Record Store Day, Black Friday? Yes, I love Record Store Day. It's just so much fun. And there's typically a lot of really cool vinyl releases just for Record Store Day. Mm -hmm. Um, Like this year, there were releases from Billie Eilish, uh, David Bowie, Ace Fraley, Fountains of Wayne. Um, It was it was super cool.
1: And I love that people are, you know, supporting uh, their local record store. Absolutely. And it's been what a success Record Store Day has been. And what year are we in now? It's been going on for... When it started, it was very much a grassroots effort. And now it's just really got such momentum going. And of course, the vinyl resurgence has really added to that in a way that... It, it well, it was starting then, even when when record store they started. But um, yeah, special it, it, shout out to Michael Kurtz uh, yeah. for for uh, starting that. And the
0: next one is April fifteenth. Um, so if you miss this one, there's one right around the corner.
1: Hmm. Hmm. So so many interesting articles in the uh, in the newsletter this week, which we're going to get to, but. You know, I got to say, we got to thank our sponsors, Jay. Yes. uh, We are so lucky. So, so lucky as we are celebrating Thanksgiving. We are thankful for our sponsors. We sure are. The Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build. A beautiful website, an EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com and try it free for 30 days. Just use the promo code Coffee, all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo... Promo code Morning Coffee. <laughs> and your Morning Coffee, the podcast, is brought to you by
0: Hypebot. Since 2004, Hypebot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Olana Bonilla, Hypebot and sister blog
1: Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And sure, how about Bands in Town? Over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms.
0: Yep, and finally, Music Business Association, uh, for more than six decades, the Music Business Biz Conference. It's been the point of origin for inspiration and collaboration all throughout the music industry. So join us in Nashville May 15th through 18th
1: and uh, we will see you there. Yes, indeed. So the Music Business Association, Banzoogle, Bot, and Bands in Town, we say thank you, thank you, thank you. Yep. Thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you. We all right, it. Jay. So what do you say we kind of... Uh, oh, by the way, before, when I say what do you say, Jay, <laughs> I should mention... <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know the illustrious career of my good friend, Jay Gilbert. Let me tell you, Jay Gilbert, he's a music industry consultant. He is the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter with which this podcast is built. And he's a former executive with Universal, Sony, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment. And just a lovely human.
0: Ah, oh, thank you so much. And this... Uh You know, brother from another mother over here is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. And Mike, before we jump in, did you happen to see that, uh, there was a story in Hypebot, I think Bruce Houghton uh, wrote it, about Facebook and it talked about how less than 11% (laughs) of your fans see your posts and that's down, you know, 29%. uh, This year alone, and, you know, it's something we talk about quite a bit, like, why can't we have something throughout these social platforms where we can actually reach all of the fans of a particular artist, right? So Facebook has this quarterly report called the uh, Widely Viewed Content Transparency Report, and that confirmed what musicians and marketers already knew. Fewer and fewer followers
1: are seeing their posts, Which is just almost inexplicable. Uh, Last quarter, just 10.6% of a a U.S. Facebook user's feed content came from pages that they follow. Uh, That's a 29% decline from 14.9% last year, according to Facebook's own report. Wow. You know, Bruce points out that there's two potential solutions to this Facebook
0: problem. Facebook groups, which I use religiously, And what he calls breadcrumbs, Facebook groups, you know, are certainly a powerful tool for marketing on Facebook. But
1: what are breadcrumbs? Well, an interesting question to ask, Jay, just after Thanksgiving, because I just cleaned up breadcrumbs <laughs> in my kitchen. But no, that is not. Uh, mixed in with your posts on TikTok, Twitter, or any social platform should be breadcrumbs leading fans to your website, encouraging them to sign up for your email list. Bread cr- breadcrumbs can include contests, downloads, digital gifts, and special online events, early access to tickets, merch discounts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I would I would also
0: add to that, you know, there's a couple of calls to action uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel and follow me on Spotify. And I'm not picking favorites. The reason we, we pick those typically is because, you know, if somebody follows you on or subscribes to your YouTube channel, then when you release new videos, they're notified, which is great. And then with Spotify, um, why we ask people to follow on Spotify is that then when you release new music, it's automatically added Um, to your fans, uh, Spotify playlists like Release Radar, Discover Weekly, Radio, that sort of thing. So I thought that was really interesting that Bruce kind of called out something we assumed, but we didn't really know what the numbers were. You know, that when you post something on Facebook, you hope that the fans will actually see it. And such a small percentage do without you having to pay to boost that post. And it just... It's stupid. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It's yeah. stupid.
1: Like, what yeah. If I'm following you on Facebook, don't I want to read all your posts? I,
0: yeah. It's not about the money, Mike. It's about uh, the money.
1: Don't confuse me with the facts, Jay. Don't confuse me with the facts. Know. All right. What do you say we jump into the stories? And boy, you know, we we talked last week about tickets, ticket prices, and the whole Taylor Swift thing, and a really interesting article via Hypebot from Bill Wordy. And uh, it's, you know, I mean, it's this is one of those things where it's easy to pile on, right? It's really easy to pile on to to Ticketmaster and Live Nation or any of the big conglomerates. Yeah, Uh, Easy target, right? Yes, it is an easy
0: target. Well, I've been kind of, uh, I've kind of changed my tune on some of this stuff because the more I read about it, you know, let's not let facts get in the way of a good story, right? We've had people from (laughs) Ticketmaster, people from Live Nation... Um, a whole bunch of folks have reached out to us to kind of um, you know give us their take on it. And we have a couple of, before we kind of dig into this story, which I think is really important, I think Bill Wordy did such a great job on this, but I was reading sort of these press releases from Ticketmaster and from Live Nation. And the first one, you know, from Live Nation, a couple of things that I thought were interesting from their releases, um, they said that for the... For the past 12 years, Live Nation has operated under a consent decree that, among other things, seeks to prevent anti-competitive leveraging of Live Nation-promoted content, and and they have a a federal judge who you know oversees this to make sure that it's um, uh, adhered to. Pursuant to the amended decree voluntarily entered in 19 or I'm sorry in 2020, Live Nation's compliance is monitored by a former uh, federal judge. There never has been and is not now any evidence of systemic violations of the consent decree. Okay. It remains against Live Nation policy to threaten venues that they won't get Live Nation shows if they don't use Ticketmaster. And Live Nation does not, you know, reroute
1: content as retaliation for a lost ticketing deal. Right. And it also goes on to say, Ticketmaster is also the most transparent and fan-friendly ticketing system in the U.S. Ticketmaster does not set or control ticket prices, strongly advocates for all-in pricing so that fans are not surprised by what tickets really cost, and is the undisputed market leader in ticket security and fighting bots. Ah. Ticketmaster also does not embrace deceptive and questionable secondary ticketing practices prevalent on rival sites such as speculative ticketing. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting.
0: And, and on the Ticketmaster side, they explain how tickets are, are priced and how those fees are determined. And that was something that you and I had talked about um, a lot. Um, the standard tickets sold on Ticketmaster are owned by our clients. They say, right? And that's venues, mm-hmm. sports teams, you know, event promoters. They determine the number of tickets sold and they set the face value. And I think that's something that gets lost. You know, Ticketmaster isn't setting these prices. In the case of, you know, artists like Taylor Swift, that comes from Taylor Swift and her management team. And, you know, they set those prices. So in some instances, events on our platform may have tickets that are. Market priced. We've talked about that. So ticket and fee prices may adjust over time based on demand, and this is similar to how airline tickets are done, hotel rooms. That's that's a pretty common
1: thing. They call that dynamic pricing. Right. So ticket fees, which can include a service fee, order processing fee, and sometimes a delivery fee, are determined in collaboration with our clients. Ticketmaster says in exchange for the rights to sell their tickets, our clients typically share in a portion of the fees. We collect
0: see that's new for me. I didn't know that those fees were actually you know
1: that the artists would participate in those fees um, right, right. so the portion of fees we keep this is ticketmaster saying this helps us to provide our clients with software equipment, services, and support to manage their tickets in box office and provide the sales network used by clients to distribute tickets to fans. The remainder, when taken with other revenues, is how we earn a profit. Right. And they go on to
0: say, you know, we we won't go into, you know, all of these, but just at a high level, the total uh, cost of a ticket can be made up of, number one, the face value price, then service fee and order processing fee, uh, also known as the convenience charge, right? And then a couple of other ones, um, delivery fees. um, Sure, and and again, you know, some of these they they're very transparent, saying, "Look, um, delivery fees may include a profit for Ticketmaster, the facility charge, which Ticketmaster does not share uh, in, and then of course uh, taxes." So there's there's a lot of people taking a bite.
1: There are <laughs> there are a lot of people taking a bite. Um, yeah, but yeah. There, there are, and it's a, it's a very confusing business, and I think, um, you know, if you're an artist and you're getting blowback from your fans, um, it's probably kind of natural to like, but it's not me. You're pointing the finger at the other folks, and so I think there is a bit of that going on. Yeah. Um, and there are a bunch of really interesting articles, kind of surrounding this thing. I, I'd like to talk about the Trapital one that that Dan Runcy did, yeah. which is basically how the demand for concerts skyrocketed. And he he starts the thing by saying, you know, Mariah Carey, one of the biggest selling artists in the 90s, had a hell of a run... Uh, but she didn't really tour very much. And that decade, which was the 90s, she only performed seven US shows as part of a 93 music box tour. She did seven. Uh, And then she finally toured again in 2000. And back then uh, her concert ticket prices were less than 60 bucks for uh, what was only a 19 show tour even then. So then you fast forward to the to what's going on with, with Taylor Swift and this entirely gigantic tour, he points out that the decline of CDs has driven more attention to the stage. Yeah. And as he points out, you know, in the case of Mariah Carey, she she killed it back then when CD sales were a huge revenue driver. She happened to be a performing artist, or I'm sorry, a successful artist at, at the height of the music industry. And, you know, of course, the music industry's goal at that time was to sell more CDs, because we could. We could absolutely sell those those things. So uh, back in those days, concert promotions were run by local businesses. And back until the mid-'90s, when SFX Entertainment rose to power, bought 80% of the regional promoters by the year 2000, sold its business to Clear Channel, and then spun off their promotion company as Live Nation in 2005. Yeah. So really interesting to kind of think about that, you know, th- Back then, physical product was really, if you were a big artist, a big selling artist like Mariah Carey, you were raking it in. Yeah. And there was a lot of know, revenue had other from going, physical sales, yeah,
0: right? And now exactly. we've switched to access and not ownership. And there isn't a lot of money uh, comparatively. And so right. touring and the merch associated with it are more important than ever.
1: Right, and as he as Dan says, you know the decision most artists needs to make, the decision that most artists need to make, I should say, um, if they keep the ticket prices lower, then more of their superfans who aren't as rich can attend. But if this is your only revenue stream, it doesn't work that way. It It just doesn't. If you price them low,
0: they go on the secondary market, and then you'll see what they're really worth, because when they're when they're sold in the secondary market that they're selling those at what the market will bear. And it's typically a lot more than the face value of of the ticket. There's just so much more demand. And I think that's what this whole Taylor Swift thing taught us, is there was so much pent-up demand for this. And, you know, Taylor Swift's camp will point to Ticketmaster and say, well, we warned them this was coming. Well, also, uh, Ticketmaster told them, You know, maybe you need to stagger this and not drop it all on one day because, Mm -hmm. you know, even the two million tickets that they sold was more than they'd ever done in a day. And if you think about it, that's a lot in, you know, uh, stress on that system. So let's let's take a look at, you know, this piece by Bill Wordy that that was in Hypebot, but it was also in um, in Bill Wordy's uh, weekly full rate, no cap email. And if you don't know Bill, um, he's a former Billboard editor um, and director of the uh, Bandiera Program for Music and Entertainment Industries of the uh, Newhouse School of uh, Public Communications at Syracuse University. That's a mouthful. And I'll just kick it off. You know, he, he basically states that the Taylor Swift Ticketmaster debacle has, has brought to the forefront a truth uh, that insiders have known for years. Touring and particularly ticketing is broken uh, he takes a look at the problem, its roots, and the potential, with a nudge from the incredible Miss Swift,
1: to fix it. Right. And he says, let's dive in. He says, pricing, or why Taylor Swift seems to want all of your money. He says, <laughs> most of the problems that fan experienced on that Tuesday could have been fixed with solutions that currently exist. And he says, let's talk pricing first. Ticket prices have skyrocketed with face value costs up nearly 20% from pre-COVID rates.
0: Can can, can we pause there just for a second? Because I've read so many conflicting things. First of all, he's saying that pricing has skyrocketed. And then he states that the face value are up 20% from pre-COVID. That doesn't seem like skyrocketing to me. Uh, It's a 20% is an increase. Um, but if you look at what Michael Rapinoe, um said, Live Nation CEO, he said that concerts are up 5% from the same period. So again, there are conflicting reports on what yeah. that is, but have they gone
1: up? Yeah, because demand has gone up. Right. If you said they've gone up 50%, I'd believe that. Yeah. Cause it, it feels like, it feels like like that. And
0: when you read these articles and people are so upset and Congress is getting involved and it's,
1: it's bedlam, you know, you would think that there's, it's higher than that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then he goes on to say that the past few years, secondary market sites like StubHub and SeatGeek have made one thing clear to the managers and agents of touring stars. They've been dramatically underpricing tickets by free market standards. So he says if Taylor puts face value tickets in the marketplace for two hundred dollars and they are immediately selling for thousands of dollars on StubHub, the StubHub price is the true market value. There it is. This is the logic behind Ticketmaster's dynamic pricing, a database promoter set fluid approach to pricing that reflects market demand. These were the Springsteen tickets that were selling for thousands of dollars that we also talked about. So yeah. you know, and this is and this is the way Amazon does it. You'll see you know certain things that are that are in, in, that's in, right. In low supply but high demand. Suddenly, that's they what the market
0: will in. bear. Right. Exactly. We talk, We mentioned a moment ago: airline tickets, hotel rooms, and there is that complaint that well, then only the mega rich are going to be able to go to concerts. And I remember you and I talking about something Billy Joel was doing, which was pretty cool. Where he got tired of seeing people in the front couple rows that didn't seem that they were that interested in the show, so he would buy those up and then go grab people like hardcore fans that were maybe back further in the arena and put those hardcore fans up front. If artists wanted to set low prices and stop the secondary market, they could basically do it tomorrow. How do I know this? Because at least one artist already has Pearl Jam. You know, they remain one of the world's most enduring touring acts, regularly filling arenas. And when they put on their recent, you know, giga tour, uh, They use a combination of Ticketmaster's verified fan technology and their own 10 Club fan membership to sell tickets that limited resale. And that, you know, it went to the longest standing members of the fan club first. If fans wanted to resell, they could only do so at face value and only fan to fan. Uh, Ticketmaster platform calls face value ticket exchange. The results outside of a small handful of states that ban the sale of non transferable tickets, scalping fell
1: virtually to zero right that is pretty impressive uh, and of course you'll remember it was the same band Pearl Jam that uh, whose complaints led to a mid 90s Justice Department investigation of Ticketmaster. but of course they're now working with Ticketmaster and actually succeeding in you know what is essentially a, a fairly positive fan experience and then Bill goes on to say you know ironically Congress. <laughs> in a very congressy approach, has tried to pass legislation that rem- would remove an artist's ability to limit resale. Mm-hmm. Literally the only approach that has ever worked to keep prices at the levels that artists intend. Uh, the Boss Act of 2019 proposed a federal ban on limiting resale. Uh, somebody named Bill Pascrell, who's a representative from New Jersey and the principal sponsor of this boss act continues to press for this point. His dismissal of Pearl Jam's concerns about this issue in 2020 was a tour de force of smug condescension, but he and others who think like him are critically misguided and some fans and uh, are some fans annoyed or inconvenienced by only being able to resell their tickets at face value on specific platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Does that pale dramatically in comparison to empowering scalpers to limit supply and overcharge for the subsequent demand? Of course it does.
0: Of course it does. And there, there was another piece in your Morning Coffee this last week um, uh, about uh, Avenge Sevenfold's uh, singer M. Shadows. And he, yeah. o- he offered some insights on the Live Nation and Ticketmaster ticketing concerns. And this was via uh, a string of tweets. He called out recent politicians that were voicing their displeasure adding quote leave it to grandstanding politicians to get involved in something they know nothing about and leave it to artists to shrug their shoulders and point the blame.
1: Yeah, good for him. Good for him. You know, it's it is a complex thing, but it's but nobody wants to kind of take some responsibility really and But he's kind of saying, you know, even as artists, we need to we need to get into the fray and kind of, you know, recognize what is under our control and be honest about it.
0: I think there's there's some greed going on in some of these uh, instances. Wait, wait, you know, wait, wait, Jay. Did you just say greed? You take that back. In the music business? No. It just it's not in everyone. But, you know, uh, Bill points out that... (laughs) It may not matter. Artists are are beginning to get surprisingly comfortable letting their fans know that they want top dollar. And he uses the example of Bruce Springsteen. You know that he addressed and owned it. You know, in an interview with Rolling Stone, uh, Bruce said, "We have those tickets that are going to go for that, meaning higher price somewhere anyway. The ticket broker or someone's going to be taking that money. I'm going, hey." why shouldn't that money go to the guys that are going to be up there sweating three hours a night for it? You know, I, I can't, I can't fault him for that. I mean, it's supply and demand, same with Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift. You know, there's tremendous demand for those tickets and just like anything in, in capitalism, you know, if there's that much demand, there's going to be, you know, that, that higher pricing. Do I think that there should be an inexpensive way for some of these uh, fans to go see the show. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe limiting these resale uh, numbers and some of those things could help. but none of this is foolproof.
1: No. Uh, Bill also spoke about talking about the fees and he says, or who gets what when who gets what when you get robbed? <laughs> uh, but he said he spoke to oh. two different executives who told me that clients, That's right. Clients set most of the fees and that in many cases, particularly for large shows, as much as 80% of fees are going to venues. Music fans would benefit from a lot more transparency in this area, though. Of course, for starters, all in ticket pricing, where the price you initially click to buy is what you pay at checkout, should be federal law. And what's wrong with that? Right? That's
0: reasonable. That's really reasonable because you and I have both had that situation happen where we went to buy tickets and I'll just make up a number. It says, okay, this is $100. And then you get to check out, and it's 150 175 And you're like, wait a second. But all they're saying here is, you know, there's some transparency in that, that first number that you see. For that show, it's $175. And then maybe they can break down exactly where that's going, what those
1: fees are. Um, and that's what he's saying. Yeah. Be, make sure the recipients of the fees, that, that information should be public. Yeah, it seems pretty reasonable to me.
0: This, this whole Taylor Swift thing and now everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. We need to break up Ticketmaster and Live Nation and someone's got to pay. And, you know, they're outside the house with their torches and ready for a lynching. And it's it's horrendous. Everybody's piling on, but you have to kind of look at the facts behind it. And I think that the thing with Taylor Swift, the reason things broke down is there was just, you know so much more demand than they they had anticipated. And Mm -hmm. secondarily to that, this should have been staggered over multiple days and not tried to happen all in one day. And I think there's fault
1: on both sides. Right. And Bill actually, you know, speaking, we were talking about politicians and Congress getting involved. Bill mentioned he had a great paragraph about that. He said, if Congress actually wants to be helpful, there are some legislative solutions that would protect fans. First, create a bot act with teeth. Put caps on scalper pricing. The UK has done this, uh, and early results are promising. Make service fees transparent, as we talked about. Let fans know who... The artist, the venue, or the ticket seller is taking what percentage of fees with each purchase. Mandate all-in pricing so that the advertised cost of a ticket doesn't suddenly jump when it comes time to check out. And more than anything, do not prevent artists from limiting resale. This will empower them to have the final word on ticket pricing. Yeah. Let's talk
0: about bots for a second because Mm -hmm. there's some common misconceptions about what a bot is. It's not this robot. It's not this scary thing. It's just a little piece of software um, that are used to buy up these tickets and typically really good tickets. And so they can be sold on the secondary market. And I love the fact that uh, we're calling that out. I know that Ticketmaster is doing all they can to kind of filter bots out. Um, They're very savvy. Um, And having Congress get involved in that, I think that's something that could be very helpful, uh, to eliminate that, uh, horrible problem.
1: Yeah. So a lot of work to do, but it seems like I'm trying to remember, you know, this is, we're now in the year 2022, almost 2023. And the, the whole thing with Pearl Jam and Ticketmaster, that was back in the nineties. So this has been a conversation that has been going yeah. on for come went up on 30 years. And it is time to do to really put some of these things and I hope Congress or, or politicians can, you know, sort of quell the the hype and and look at some of these things that, that Bill mentioned that are very specific things that can be done to really truly help the situation. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We shall see. All right, Jay. Now I don't know if you've noticed, Jay, but there's been a little bit of news, it's kinda hard to find, about what's going on over there at Twitter. Yes. Yes, there there has been. <laughs> And uh as with
0: every day it's like this, you know, nonstop. Um gosh, it's it's crazy um what's been happening at at Twitter. Um, but we have this piece we're gonna talk about um, by Ross Shulman and John Callis from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Mm-hmm. And the headline in Hypot is Where are all the Twitter users are going and what
1: is the Fediverse? I hadn't heard yeah. that term. What before. is the Fediverse? Fediverse. I had not either. And uh, needless to say, a wave of people have announced that they're leaving Twitter to check out something called Mastodon. And that leaves many people wondering, what is Mastodon anyway? More importantly, what is the Fediverse and what is ActivityPub? And this is kind of an explainer about that. I had not heard of any of those things. Um,
0: I checked out Mastodon. Um, I don't know, Mike. It... I haven't seen not anything there yet. yet. Yeah, that's fully baked. That is simple to use and has the interface like Twitter. It just it's simple and it works. And some of these mm-hmm. other things, um, they're not as intuitive. You know. So what is the Fediverse? You know, um, uh, federation is a broad term that means uh, you know a group that has smaller groups within it, right? Uh, that ret- retain some measure of autonomy within that whole. In internet terms, the most well-known federated system is our old friend email, right? So no matter how much you love or hate email itself, it's a working federated system that's been around for over a half century. It doesn't matter what email server you use, what email client you use. We all use email and the experience is more or less the same for all of us. And that's a good thing. The web is also federated. Any website can link to embed, refer to stuff. You know, on any other site, and in general, it doesn't matter what browser you use. The internet started out federated and even continues to be. So that, that kind of, they, they talk about how this relates to uh, Twitter, how it's this, you know, Fediverse.
1: Right. So Mastodon is allegedly... Uh, In the Fediverse, it's a Twitter-like social network and communication system to which many users are switching following the recent turmoil over at Twitter. At a basic level, very basic level, Mastodon is a web server or app that acts as a social network, just just like a service such as Twitter or TikTok. You use it by visiting a website or using an app on your smartphone. Yeah, okay, got that. And you can post text, images, and videos that can be seen by your followers. You can also follow others and see their posts in your own timeline. In this way, Mastodon is very very similar to services you already know and probably use every day. In fact, it's very much like Twitter itself, which is why people unhappy with Twitter are considering Mastodon as an alternative and why we're writing this essay. (laughs) What makes Mastodon interesting, though, is that the server, or is that the server, or instance, the terms are interchangeable, that you might use isn't the only server running Mastodon in the world. And you came across this when you first went on there, right? Yeah, there were multiple choices there.
0: It's just not as elegant and intuitive um, I'm not sold on Mastodon. Um, I do want to look at other alternatives to Twitter, and there's so many that are now popping up. But then think about all of the people that are on Twitter and uh, a move. But as a friend of mine reminded me uh, this last week, there was a time when MySpace was the king of you know yes. uh, social media, and we couldn't even imagine something taking its place. Well, then along came Facebook, you know, and Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and all these other things. And I think that there could be a, a replacement for
1: Twitter. I just haven't seen it yet. Yeah. It's, and I'll go back even further. Let's talk about AOL. Remember yeah. when AOL, with Time Warner. And I couldn't imagine a space of a, a world where that AOL was the internet
0: where, for a long time the, in most absolutely. people's minds is, you know, yes. that you hear that sound as you dialed up, <laughs> right? That squeaky <laughs> squawking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You've got mail, you know, That's right. I remembered vividly. That was pretty much uh, for a lot of folks. That was the internet. So, you know, uh, there's always something new uh, around, you know, right. Um, we'll we'll okay. see how it pans out and I'll keep, kind of testing these things out. But, you know, um, he, he asks the question, what's different in the Fediverse? And while many people are moving from Twitter to Mastodon or a competitor, let's be clear. Mastodon is not the whole Fediverse, and the Fediverse is not simply a Twitter replacement. The Fediverse is an example of how we can have a paradigm shift in how we do social media. It's It's still undergoing some growing pains, like a small town that's now seeing boom times, new people arriving in large numbers can change the trajectory of a social part of the network and come with their own points of friction and and we've seen that before so it's an evolution um i think um i'll be reporting on this we'll we'll try out these twitter uh replacements and we'll we'll see how it goes i know there's a lot of people dropping off there was an article in your morning coffee this last week listing some of these celebrities and musicians that were dropping off of Twitter, Um, Mm -hmm. whether that was due to people they were letting back on the platform, whether it was due to just uh, the way that they handled letting so many people go. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. But if you are uh, looking for uh, a replacement, we'll be watching that
1: space closely. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting. But again, you know, we, we, we couldn't imagine the collapse of AOL. We couldn't imagine the collapse of MySpace. Um, You know, the, 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 the road is littered with things like that. that seemed like they were going to go forever. Downloads. We thought downloads would be
0: there. It was the one configuration that was around the least amount of time. And, and really the last thing I'll say on this whole Fediverse, I love that, you know, A Fediverse doesn't have any central authority, um, which means that some features like Twitter's original blue check verification, you know, that now you have to pay for, that simply doesn't exist. The closest thing to getting verified is proving to your instance that you control an external web page or resource by including a special hyperlink in your profile. So it's going to be a different a different way of doing business because we're used to those mm-hmm. blue check marks across social platforms, you know, that verification that says, yes,
1: I am this person. Yeah. Yeah, you know, thinking back, I, I remember uh, having this conversation. Remembering the, you know, when, when we have conversations like this and talk about AOL and talk about MySpace, it, it gets me thinking back. And you know, we we've been in this sort of you know internet based new music business seemingly for so long. But I I remember having a conversation with my good friend the late John Paris, and he was one of the the or if you been around long enough there used to be a pho news or a pho news group FU, yeah. was it a news group or was it, was it still around yeah it's I still subscribe. around absolutely. yeah it's, it's yeah, still jim there. griffin yeah. yeah jim griffin absolutely. is really involved yeah there. but i remember john a, a, on his business card in the early days of all that stuff he put his email address on it which now we think about is it, just so common and him telling me like he would give his he, he would give his card to somebody and they'd look at it and go What's an email address? Right. You know, and it seems like it seems so hard to even fathom that. I know. But it hasn't been that long. No. You know, it really
0: hasn't. When I came to Universal in the home office in, I believe it was 1991, I was one of the first people with company email testing it. Right. And I remember going into um, my boss uh, and mentor, Bob Schneiders, and, you know, showing him how to do it. And my, his first email was to me and that was like such a a big deal for me. Right. Um, and now to your point, well, I remember when they first started putting, uh, web addresses in advertisements and I thought that was really crazy. You know, like visit, you know, coca-cola.com and they would always go (laughs) wwwcoca cola Yes, the whole thing. The the whole
1: darn thing. Right. (laughs) The whole thing, and I was at Deaf American in the early '90s, and I think we were, if not the first label, certainly one of the first labels to put a website up. Yeah, and it was just, you know, and, and that was even—I don't think we even had email addresses at that point. And I, I worked with Mark Geiger, who, of course, went on to, you know, went William Morris and Plus, all that stuff. But he was a really an early advocate for all of the getting email addresses with the company and putting up a website. And uh, yeah, it was early days, and it was. Just and and again you'd meet people and you try to explain that and they're like what you know yeah. it's just, it was just it was it's it hasn't been that long it really it's hasn't been a long time and
0: you yeah. and i worked together in a d- division of universal called ecat which stood for electronic commerce and advanced technology group and that was back when they called uh digital marketing they just called it new media right yes and it's yes. not so it's not so new
1: anymore Not at all. It's, 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 it's the norm. It is the norm. So it's, uh, yeah, we do sound like a couple of codgers, Jay, sitting back and thinking about the old days and talking about the old
0: days. But you know, it's, uh, it's fun to kind of look back on that. I'm going to do a quiz in your morning coffee. One of these days I I pulled up all of these dates for like, you know, when the first uh, iPhone came out or when Spotify launched or when YouTube launched and some of those things. And it's fun to look at, there's, I think like 30 different kind of lines. And, This stuff's been around about a week and a half. So, you know, my grandfather has this great saying, you know, an idiot is someone who doesn't know what you just found out. And that's sort of the music business sometimes is, you know, like, look, let's relax here on this Fediverse and Web3. This stuff's been around like a week and a half. Right. Let's just calm down and see where this goes.
1: Yes. And uh, as I say frequently, uh, I am so appreciative of the newsletter, Jay, because that helps me keep up without doing the legwork that you so kindly do every (laughs) week. And so make sure you look at the newsletter every week, because that is the best source of kind of what's happening now and what's on the horizon. And uh Thank Jay you. stays up very late at night on a Thursday and get that thing out on a Friday morning at four a.m. Thank so, you, brother. Uh, I, I appreciate that. That is the and best it's just, advice. It's such I a will joy to do. Uh,
0: to be honest with you, because I'm just a curious guy and I love uh, learning this stuff each week. And it's you know we like to joke around and say it's the music business has changed while you and I have been having this coffee talk uh, together. So don't think you're you know stupid or uninformed because you don't know some of this stuff we just found out and it's going to change next week so let's mm-hmm. all take a deep breath and just see what we can learn from it which leads us beautifully into our third and final uh, story and this is from our friends over at Midia, uh tatiana uh, sarasano um she was at music tectonics and uh, i wanted to say hi to her but we were both kind of engaged in conversation i didn't get a chance to uh Say hello, but uh, she wrote this piece, and the headline is The Record Labels TikTok Opportunity Cost. And I love media, I love how they break things down and help people to understand what's really going on here. And I'll just kick it off with you know, Tatiana says, uh, with their short term music licensing agreements soon to expire, we covered this a little bit last week. Record labels are reportedly pressuring TikTok to sign an ad revenue share agreement which would see TikTok pay a share of advertising revenue to music rights holders. It's easy to compare TikTok's trajectory to YouTube's, but the platforms have key differences and every opportunity comes with costs. An ad revenue deal would have a ripple effect on what types of artists benefit
1: most from TikTok and how. Sure. <laughs> well, this is uh, Yeah, this is. Uh, as she, the next headline is what makes TikTok especially contentious. <laughs> Negotiations between uh, labels, publishers, and user-generated content platforms have always centered around to what degree the platform is purely a promotional tool versus a form of music consumption. In fact, this conversation has been going on for more than a hundred years. Yeah. If you t- look back at the agreement with radio, and with publishing companies. Yep. TikTok is both, and more intensely so than any platform before it. No user-generated content platform has ever rivaled TikTok's power to vault songs to hit status. And TikTok is also becoming a form of consumption in its own right. So you have this weird thing that it's kind of many things. Consumers already spend more time on video platforms, including YouTube and TikTok, than they do streaming music. That is a really interesting line right mm-hmm. there, by the way. To get even more meta, TikTok is also growing at the expense of YouTube, where you you see UGC-generated TikTok. $2 billion for the music industry last year. To labels and publishers, TikTok's growth cannot come without making up for potential time lost on higher paying platforms. Even so, music remains a net winner. For now, TikTok is carving out its own consumption space while also driving traffic to DSPs. Fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think there's two things that jump out at me about what you just pointed out from her piece. One is, it's complicated. TikTok is a promotional tool, and it's a form of music consumption and with reso their you know distribution mm-hmm. or tiktok music whatever you want to call it it becomes even more complicated uh just to point out for those that don't know you mentioned UGC a few times there and for those that don't know it's just user generated content which yeah. you know sh- it. no it's cool a short short form video platform you know like tiktok and in fact even youtube a lot of that is UGC Um, a lot of what's going on today is UGC and it's, and it's really huge. Um, I was speaking with this company last week called PEX, P E X. And it's just fascinating. They actually ran a report for me. If you haven't checked them out, um, they're, they're online. Um, PEX, one of their superpowers is really looking at your content. I hate using that word, but I will. let's say you have a a management company or a label, and you want to see like all of that music, what's happening with that music, especially on the video side, you would think that most of the plays on your video are coming from YouTube and you would be wrong. It's very, very small percentage, like less than 10% of your plays are actually coming from YouTube and Vivo and platforms like that. They track where it's being played in user generated content, UGC. Mm -hmm. So things like, you know, TikTok, maybe even Twitch or, you know, on the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And it's phenomenal to see not only where your um, music is being played, your videos are being played or edited or clipped or, or whatever, but like what chunk of it are they taking a 30 second piece out? Are they doing the whole thing? And it varies
1: wildly by genre and mood. Super interesting company, Pex. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, what, what she was pointing out in this, uh, in this article you know, about these licensing deals, she says the short-term blanket licensing deals that labels and publishers signed with TikTok were always meant to be just that. Short term, term, giving TikTok time to establish itself and its business model while preventing labels, publishers from blocking themselves into a long-term arrangement too early. Mm. So now we have TikTok that has become a multi-billion dollar app with over 1 billion monthly active users. The music industry says that, hey, that time is up. (laughs) (laughs) The <laughs> Details about the yeah, negotiations like 12 remain. Million, I think you said last week it was like
0: twelve million dollars in the last year. That's not nothing. Oh yeah, twelve billion. That's not I think nothing. I, did I yeah. say million? I meant
1: billion. You did say million. you meant billion, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know this. This also reminds me of um, MTV yeah. and the er, the early negotiations. Good and, comparison. You know, when I talk to because I've you know I, I've kind of had this spiel where, where I go to into high school classes and talk about the you know the the whole thing with with MTV and it, you know that that was their parents' generation of these kids. So they don't really understand, you know, but what happened with MTV, which is, yeah, they got super successful, super fast, and all the labels said, hey, we want a piece of that advertising. That's right. And, of course, then they ended up creating their own content, and that's why MTV, which still exists, is very little on the M. That's right. You know, it's
0: all on, the, on
1: their other stuff. Yeah, so. and there's
0: one other uh, example, and that was when the iPod started exploding Mm -hmm. and then microsoft had its zune and you know all of those things the labels were saying hang on a second a lot of what you're putting on these devices is our ip and not necessarily something purchased from you know the itunes music store we want you know i forget what it was like a dollar a unit or something for these um player so yeah the youtube great great analogy or comparison yeah
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, anyway, she says, you know, yet this, uh, we're talking about the upside of these things. She said, you know, the upside was not always so obvious to the labels whose initial value gap argument was based around YouTube's ad revenue share model. Mm -hmm. Now, if the reports are true, the label's new value gap argument focuses on getting TikTok to adopt exactly what was the basis of the first value gap, the takeaway, it will always take time for labels and the rest of the industry to understand the value of new models, and perhaps the ad revenue share was the right one all along. So you're right. You know when you and we were we've been in so many of these meetings back at Universal in our day, where you know that you're people are coming in with an idea or a or a or an app or some sort of a service. <laughs> all and the time. You're kind of looking at it yeah. all the time, but you're looking at it going. Okay, what's you know what what's the best way of of getting value to us and and it was was always not something super apparent. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't, but you always want to build in the ability to you don't want to make a gigantic commitment early on, like like she's saying in this article, you know, these short term deals really make a lot of sense because that gives you a chance to sort of really evaluate and see how these things evolve over time right and how how where the profit might because it might be different. At the beginning that it is in the mid part. Absolutely. Things change and, and all of these these uh, ideas and apps and companies and things like that are always kind of shifting their strategy Yeah, because they learn as well when you launch projects.
0: And, and there's products. new things coming. You know, a few years ago, we wouldn't have dreamed that Peloton would be um, providing right. the revenue to the music industry that there are. So there's always new things around the corner, but I keep coming back to this line in here that... TikTok is a powerful promotion promotional tool, as was MTV. So you kind of have right. to balance, you know, yes, it's a form of music consumption, but it's also a promotional tool. You know, same with radio. My bottom line is, is that the the people who have recorded that song and the people who wrote that song should be properly paid, and that's something I know that you're a strong advocate for. So as long as that's happening it i get the feeling now that tiktok is now what would we would say like 12 billion dollars in the last year they're generating some serious revenue and now is the perfect time for these music licensing agreements that are expiring to be renegotiated as now we know what this platform is is
1: really capable so yes yeah. yes exactly well on that note jay boy we uh, I, I would love to by the way be a fly on the wall in those meetings yeah. with tiktok yeah oh boy that uh, would we'll be, be watching fun. that closely right absolutely so we do want to thank everyone for listening in this week jay and i certainly appreciate that it never gets old and boy we get emails and we get bump into people at conferences and yeah, it's, it's so gratifying to have folks say hey we listen to the show, and we uh, Jay and I never take that for granted. Nope. So, thanks for listening in, and uh, we do want, to, of course, want to thank our sponsors: the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Couldn't do it without them. Big thanks to those wonderful folks. And uh, Jay, what do you say we call it? Thanks for listening in, folks. Have a great week. We will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast.
2: You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.